Amen. Well, once again, our attention turns to the subject of trusting in God. You've been with us over the last couple months. We've been learning all the reasons why we can trust Him, and there are many reasons why we can. Last couple weeks, we've been talking a little bit more specifically on how we are to trust Him, and specifically in times of waiting upon the Lord. Now listen, when you take those two elements together, when you take the, the why and the how of trusting in God, and you begin to live that out, something amazing begins to happen. That is, your faith begins to grow. You begin to mature in your faith in God, in the person of Jesus Christ. And isn't that what it's all about? Isn't it really, isn't that what God wants for us, is He wants us to love Him more, yes, but He wants us to trust Him more, to believe in Him more, to have a greater faith in Him, to entrust our whole selves to Him. It's God's desire for us. And, and so the question that I kind of have is, is this, is if that's what God wants, how do we know that we're actually doing it? In other words, how would we know that we're trusting Him more? If He wants us to trust Him more today than yesterday and more tomorrow than today, how, how do we know that we're trusting Him more today than we were a year ago? And I think that that answer, or at least part of that answer, comes in chapter 26 by looking at the life of David. Because we're going to see that David is actually growing very much in his faith. He's trusting God more than he did back even two chapters before in chapter 24. And I think that's going to become clear for us this morning. So here's what I want to do. Before we take the Lord's Supper, I want to very quickly, I want to point out to you in chapter 26, really four marks of a maturing faith. Four marks of a maturing faith. And let me set the table for you first, kind of set the background the context, if you will. The story begins on a very familiar note. Saul, once again, continuously wants to kill and find, find and kill, in that order, uh, find and kill David. And so he's looking for him everywhere, and he receives word back that, that David is actually down in the wilderness of Ziph. So he takes, my favorite wilderness, by the way, it's the wilderness of Ziph. Um, of all the wildernesses, that's the best Anyway, so anyway, and so he gathers 3,000 of his men, the best, the best soldiers he can get, and he begins to track down and begins to hunt down David. And at night, they begin to set up camp. And, and the picture in the first about six or seven verses that we have is that Saul is placed right in the middle of 3,000 men as they all begin to lay down and go to bed during the night. And right next to him is his right-hand man, his personal bodyguard, who his name is Abner. And Abner is really the commander of all of Saul's army. So the picture, I think, in the first seven verses of this chapter is one of security and safety as far as Paul would see things. But we see that that's very, very quickly is going to change. See, David has heard through his spies exactly where Saul and his men are being camped out. So he now takes his men and they move to that particular area. They're a little bit uh, a ways and a distance from them. And he turns to two of his, of his men and he asks this question in verse 6. In verse 6 he says, Who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and this, his right-hand man, Abishai, they work their way into the camp of Saul. Imagine this, if you will. Go through, and they work through this sea of soldiers, and they come up right to where Saul is sleeping. He's sleeping, and it's described that he has a canteen of water there, a jar of water. He's got his spear stuck into the ground next to his head, and next to him, very close, is his bodyguard, Abner. 
Now, what's interesting happens here is that a conversation automatically begins to uh, erupt, begins to kind of break out at this particular point between the two. They begin to have a discussion. You think you'd want to be quiet. Now, my question was, how in the world did they get in there to begin with? And actually, verse 12 tells us that, that God had put a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So God is all about this. But as they're in the middle of the camp, right standing next to Saul and his bodyguard in the midst of 3,000, they begin to get into kind of an argument, into kind of a scuffle. And so look what Abishai says in verse 8. He says to him, and, and what we're going to see here is it's in the words of David that we begin to see his maturity in his faith. And the first thing we begin to see, the first mark, is a confident faith. So look at verse 8. He says, Then Abishai, uh, he said, Then said Abishai to David, He said, God has given your enemy into the hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the, to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. You know, I, I have to believe that Abishai is a father. Right, Because I can recognize father's speech, and this is father's speech. I bet you before he left home, he said something to the effect to his kids, you clean that room, and I'm not going to say it twice, right? And so now he's in battle, and what does he say? He says, hey, man, just give me a stab at it. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. All right, and uh, let, give me a try. I'm not going to need more than once. Uh, I, I will finish this through. Just give me one opportunity. It's not going to take twice. And so there he is. He's ready to go, which tells us that Abishai believed that when David invited him down on this trip, that it was going to be a secret assassination trip, that they were going to assassinate Saul. But David, at this point, has to really restrain Abishai just like he had to do back in chapter 24. Do you remember 24? Uh, David was in, in, in a cave, and his 600 men wanted to kill Saul, who just so happened to go in to relieve himself into this cave, and he has to restrain himself and restrain them. Chapter 25 he has to be restrained. Now in chapter 26, he's having to restrain Abishai once again from, from killing him. So notice in verse 9, it says, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now verse 10, the beginning of verse 10, is where we see this confident faith, this maturing of his faith, the confidence. Notice what it says in the beginning of verse 10. And David said, As the Lord lives the Lord will strike him. So here's what he's basically saying, as the Lord lives. He knows that the Lord lives. David, who writes all the psalm, knows that God has no beginning and no end. He know, if he knows anything, he knows that the God that he serves is alive. As assured as he is of that, he knows that now God is going to deal with the issue that he is faith facing. He knows without a shadow of a doubt, he's absolutely confident that the trouble he's in, that God is going to answer and answer his prayers and to be able to help him out at this particular point. He's a thousand percent confident of it. Now, this confidence we didn't see back in chapter 24. In chapter 24, just remember for a moment, if you weren't there, let me explain it. When David was in the cave, remember, he was hiding in a cave. Is he hiding anymore? No, what is he doing? He's actually going into the camp. He goes from hiding into a cave to going into the very camp in the center part of where Saul is. There's some confidence going on here. And back in chapter 24, when he comes out and he begins to defend himself before Saul, 
And he begins to tell him, I'm innocent. You're guilty. You shouldn't be doing this. He begins to say, I know that God is going to deliver me. I, I know. And he's very wordy in it. Go back to it and look at it. He's very wordy. And the reason for that is he sounds like a man that's trying to convince him that God is going to try to help him. He knows what God has said, but he's having a hard time fully embracing that belief. Have you ever been there? You hear the word of God, you know that it's the truth, but you're struggling and really allow it to grip your heart and to bring comfort into your heart. It reminds me of the story in Mark chapter 9. Do you remember when the man's son dies? His son dies and Jesus comes to him and he says, all things are possible for those who believe. And he says, do you believe? And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. You ever feel there? You're hearing the word of God. You know that it's true, but somehow your emotions are not quite there and you're trying to find yourself, try to convince yourself that this is true. David was there in 24, but now in 25, now that time has gone by, now he seems to be so much more confident what happened. Well, time happened, but also the faithfulness of God happened. In chapter 25, what, what happened there? Same exact problem, just follow with me. There was somebody who was after, or there was somebody who had done him wrong. He wanted to take vengeance. Remember, his name was Nabal. He wanted to go after him. God restrained him from doing what was wicked. But then he said, hey, listen, I'll leave it up to God. Let God take care of it. And what did God do? The end of chapter 25, he struck down Nabal. Now we're in chapter 26. And this man that was in, 25, or in 20, 24, whose faith was so feeble, and so shaky is now 100% confident. No longer is he hoping that God will do something. He now knows and is 1,000% confident that God will do something. Why? Because he's seen the faithfulness of God in the past. He's seen that God has worked. The way that you and I become more confident in our faith, there's only other one way, is to allow time to go by, to trust in God over a long period of time, and to let him show and to illustrate just how faithful he is. This morning we were praying uh, for the team that's about to go over to Honduras. And I'm so excited for you that don't know, that was a, a boy's home that my father started about, about 20, I think 24 years ago. He was actually there for 22 years and we're so excited about them all going down. I think they're going to have a wonderful time. But my dad was not the same man at the end of his ministry there as he was in the beginning. In the beginning, I remember him telling me, hey, listen, here's what we're going to do. I was in college at the time. He goes, I'm going to go down to Honduras. I'm just going to take in these boys off the streets. And, uh, and we're going to feed them. And we're going to clothe them. And we're going to try to find some housing for them. And I remember him saying it. And him saying something to this effect. And God will provide but when he said it, I wasn't so sure that he was all that confident in it because he didn't have a whole lot of money. He didn't have, a, he didn't have space. He didn't have a place to put the kids. He didn't have food to be able to feed them. So there was a great need. So even though he believed that God would be faithful in helping him to help these orphans, as the Bible tells us to be able to do, he was nervous about it. Fast forward about 20 years later, and the same man was completely and radically different. He wasn't the same man. And it wasn't because later in life things got easier. It wasn't because the need was less. They, didn't, they needed more food, not less. They needed more housing, not less. They needed more clothing, not less. And it's not like my dad just all of a sudden came into a whole wad of money. It, it was still a need, but you saw that. I go, Dad, how are you going to handle this? And he would sit back and go, the Lord will supply. But there was a huge difference in the way that he said it. 
There was no trembling in his voice. There was no, I think so, there's no shakiness. I, I know that God will. Uh, I believe, but help my unbelief. He was 1,000% sure that God was going to help him. Why? Because of the time that has passed by of his depending upon God and God proving himself to be faithful every way along the way. Does, does that make sense? Now, let me, let me suggest something. I hope this is encouraging to you. Uh, God still responds to feeble faith. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God responds to feeble, shaky faith. And it's a good thing he does because that's most of my faith. It's, it's, it's pretty shaky. Uh, let, me, let me explain. When the Bible says, in the word faith movement, people are saying, if you just have to have enough faith, if you just have enough faith, if you have a lot, whole big honking wad of faith, then God will do what it is that you ask him to do. I am so glad that that is false doctrine and not the reality of what the Bible teaches us. Because the Bible says that if you have but the faith the size of a mustard seed, then he goes, even for you, he goes, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will ultimately move. The point is not in how big of a faith or how great my faith is. It's where that faith is placed. So my faith is not so grand and so wonderful. And lots of times when I'm asking and believing in God, lots of times my heart is being wrenched and I'm, and, and I'm feeling doubts. Anybody ever be there? But God responds to that type of of faith. But let me tell you this. He responds to shaky faith, and he responds to confident faith. And I've experienced both, and I've just got to tell you, confident faith is a whole lot better. And it's a demonstration of somebody maturing in their faith because it shows that for a period of time, they have been trusting in God, and they have seen along the way God's faithfulness. And that's what he does here. That's a mark of a person whose faith is maturing, is there's a confident faith. Number two, there's an accepting faith. Now, David knows very well that God is going to be faithful and that he's going to deliver him from Saul. In fact, he believes that he's going to take his life. Some way, somehow, for him to come to the throne, Saul's got to be taken out. He's got to be taken out, all right? And so what he says next, notice in the next text, he, it shows that he's not only okay with, with believing that God's going to do it, He's okay with the way, whatever way that God chooses to do it. I want you to get that. He's not only okay in believing that God's going to do it, he's okay with however God chooses to do it. Look at verse 10. It says, and David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and he will perish. You know what he's saying? I know that God's going to take him out. And he might take him out by striking him down just like he did with Nabal. I know that. Or you know what? He may live a while and he might live a long life and he might die from natural causes. Or he might even today, we might get into a scuffle and we might duke it out and he might die on the battlefield. His point is he recognizes that God can do what he says he will do in whatever way he ultimately wants to do it. Did you know that? And God has a lot of different crazy ways of providing for his people and you don't really know where it's coming from or how it ultimately works. You understand that? But there's a reason why we have to understand it and we have to ultimately receive it. Because I believe oftentimes when we're trusting God to be able to answer a prayer for us or a promise that he's given us in the word of God, that many times we start in our mind dictating how God needs to be able to fulfill that promise in the word of God. In other words, we think we, we know how God should ultimately do it. Let me give you an example. Student loans, ever have any? 
Don't, if you can, at all possible. And definitely don't buy an engagement ring from that money, all right? Uh, another, another sermon series, but don't do that. Um, that doesn't work well, especially when it doesn't work out. And, uh, and uh, so another sermon series, or at least illustration. But here, here's what happens. It's very hard to pay off, and you can't get out of those jokers, okay? I mean, you're like, hey, can I just, you know, claim bankruptcy or whatever, which I don't claim that you should do. I'm getting off here. But here's the point. There, you can't get out of those things. And so I remember really sitting there and going, you know what? Really biblically, God has, God is not bound to pay off my debts, at least not my physical debt. Sin debt, he was willing to be able to do. But physical debt, do you understand that? When we go into these debts, we can't go into debt and turn around to God and go, okay, God, get me out of this. He is not bound through scripture to help me out of that. But he is gracious, he is merciful, and he is loving. And he does respond to a repentant heart who sits there and says, I messed up, God help me. Praise God he does, right? And so I believe that God was going to help me. And I began to tell people, I go, you know what? I read in the word of God that God's really creative and helping to provide for God's people. And he is creative. Stop and think about it. How does he feed over a million and a half people in the wilderness of 40 years? Manna falls from heaven. That's pretty creative. How does he give them water? Through a rock. How does he provide for one of his greatest prophets? Through the beaks of ravens delivering meat? How does he provide for a group of people that forgot their lunches and one boy was smart enough to bring it to multiply, probably feed probably 20,000 people when you consider all the men, children, and their wives through two fish and five loaves? That's pretty creative. So this got me thinking that God could really pay off my debt in a very creative way, right? And so I love to begin to think, and I think this is a good thing. I think we need to dream because our God is big. God, how are you going to do this? And sit back and go, let's talk about how God's going to do this. And let's just talk about it and sit back. So here was my idea with the paying off the debt. My favorite plan was that God was going to give me a hidden secret benefactor that was going to come and just pay it off. I was like pip in great expectations. That I didn't know who was going to do it, but somebody was going to go ahead and, and pay off my loan. Any ever been there? Some of you are still waiting for that person, right? And, and sometimes I begin to sit back and go, maybe I'll just find some money. Maybe I'll just go to the park. I found myself going to parks looking for bags of money that people had just abandoned. Sounds bad, but you probably were there as well. And, and then I begin to, you know, just whatever way possible. I remember thinking, God, it would be really cool if I could win the lottery. That would be creative, and it'd be more creative because I don't even pay the lottery. So that would be really amazing if you did it through that way. And I remember just going around going, hey, God, I know that I'm not deserving of it, but, Lord, I'm trying to do what is right. I'm trying to move in the direction for you, trying to get my finances in order. I would love for you to be able to pay off this debt. I had a buddy come to me and go, dude, that's a lot of different ways. That is pretty creative. He goes, but what if he wants to do it in a completely different way? I go, what way? And I was so excited to be able to hear what's going to happen now. Is he gonna, am I going to find it in the ocean? Am I going to find treasure? What's going to ultimately happen? And he says, what if his way, though, is for you to actually get a job? And over the 20, 25 years that you have to pay that loan back, that you have to sacrifice over a period of 20 and 25 years to be able to pay off that loan a little bit at a time. And I remember sitting there going, I like my ways much better than, than, than your ways. This is not whatever. And, and here's, here's kind of the point. Those debts are paid off, I praise God. And I got to tell you, it's not really in the first three ways. It was more in the latter way of God giving a job and providing and to be able to pay those things off over a long period of time. But I got to tell you something. If we're not careful, 
God will come and provide for us and answer prayers for us and be faithful to us. But because he didn't do it exactly the way we wanted him to do, sometimes we find ourselves being disappointed. But in the whole time, that was truly God's faithfulness to put me in a position that I could work enough to be able to feed my family and be able to pay the debts off. Maturity in God sits there and says, I believe and are confident that you will do what you will do, but I also am accepting to however it is that you choose to be able to do it. Amen? Here's the third thing. Third thing is this, is that there is an obedient faith. An obedient faith. This is another mark of that. And this is very quick. I'm going to go through this, this point very quickly, but I want to make sure that we understand it. Maturity is not that we're just confident, not only that we're just uh, um, open and accepting to however God wants to do it, but we understand that during the time of waiting, there is something for us to do. David still doesn't know how providentially God is going to be able to meet this need or when he's going to meet this need, but you and I need to understand in a time of waiting, it doesn't mean inactivity. It doesn't mean, hey, just sit back and wait on the Lord and do nothing and just cross your hands. You know what we do during that time? We remain obedient to what we know that God has already commanded us to be able to do. This is what David does. Twice he brings this up. In the midst of his waiting, he says in verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Verse 11, again, The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David Platt says it well. He says it this way, When you find yourself in a time of waiting and you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. You may not know exactly how God's going to do what he's going to do and provide for you in your life. You, it, it's a mystery. You don't understand how all that works. But what is not a mystery is God's specific will for your life that is laid out in the word of God. When a man is struggling in his marriage, he hates the advice that I give to him. When he sits there and says, we're waiting, I'm waiting for God to move in my marriage, I'm waiting on God to heal my marriage, and I sit there and I pray, and I go, God, we're believing God in this, we're going to pray, I believe that this is what God would have for you, but brother, during that time of waiting, there's something that I want you to do. He says what? He said, be faithful to your wife. Love her. Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Serve her. Care for her. And you know how hard this advice is when I know that this woman is unfaithful to him, is unloving to him, abuses him, and vice versa. So what do you do during the times of waiting? You sit there and you find yourself, the maturity, a demonstration of maturity is that in times of waiting and difficult, you remain in focus on the obedience to what you know that God tells you to do through his word. Does that make sense? Four things, four things. This is a hard point, and I probably shouldn't even have added this in the message. I think it's there. I just don't know if I got it completely right. Now some of you have woken up from your nap, and you're like, mm, I will let you know. <laughs> and so <clears throat> here's number four. Number four. This happens afterwards. David, uh, and here's the fourth mark, I think, of a mature faith, and that is a, a painful faith. Well, I don't like that point. Well, I don't either, but let's, 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 let's look at it. Yeah, you must have gotten it wrong. Uh, a painful faith. David and Abishai, at this particular point, leave, David, or leave Saul, and they take the spear and the water jug with them. And they go out, and they go on to like another hill, another area far from him, a place that they feel protected. And David begins to talk smack. You know what that is? 
he begins to get up and he's yelling out to Abner. He's like, what's up, punk? Yo, ho, what's up now? And he begins to just kind of call. I'm trying to wake you up. So he, he's, he's over there and he says, hey, what's up? I was right in the middle of all of this stuff. I was right in Abner. You're supposed to be protecting him. Your men are supposed to be protecting the king. There was somebody who went in who meant harm to the king. And the evidence of that is the spear in my hand and the jug. You and your men ought to be killed. So he tells them all of this. In the midst of all of this stuff and this banter back and forth, Saul recognizes the voice of David. And you got to love Saul, right? I mean, I mean, this guy is as manipulative as it finally comes. He says, is this your voice, my son David? Uh, we've heard this before, Saul. Thank you very much for the sweet, kind words. But I know you're going to kill me if you get the opportunity to be able to do so. And so he said, David begins the same way as he bid, did back in chapter 24. Back in chapter 24, he starts saying the same defense. Verse 18, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Do you, it sounds just like 24, does it not, for you that were there? He's just basically saying, hey, man, I didn't do anything. Why are you after me? But then there's a change that we see the maturity in. He begins to describe his pain, and his pain is different than it was formerly in chapter 24, or at least the pain that he's now that he's being caused. Look, if you will, in verse 19. He says, Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. He's just saying that the reason that you're angry is because I've done something wrong and God is using you to judge me. Then let him receive my, my, my sacrifice to appease his anger towards me. But notice what he says next. He says, if it, he says, he says, but, uh, he says, um, he says, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, he says, may, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. And then he explains why. For they have driven me out of this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve the other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. Why is he mourning? He's mourning because as he's running from Saul, this affliction that he's being caused is causing him to now have to push out of the country of Israel, the area of Israel. And we're going to see later on, he's going to have to go to, to the Philistines and he's going to have to go to these other places, which means he's out of God's what land, the land that he had given them, that's his chosen land for them. So now theologically, let's work through this just for a minute. Just follow with me. During this day, there was a belief by all the other nations that gods were local deities. That is that you have the God of Israel, you have the God of the Philistines, you have the God of over here, and you, in, in, in basically that God rules over that little region of land. Is that what David is saying? Is he ultimately suggesting that if I'm outside of Israel, I can't have a relationship with God because he's, he's limited to that particular reason? Uh, we don't believe he believes that if you've ever read his Psalms. He believes he's the God of everywhere, all right? So he doesn't believe that. So what is he saying? The pain that he's experiencing is he can't be at the tabernacle. He can't be there and allow the priest to be able to sacrifice on his behalf. He's not able to be with God's people. So the remorse and the pain that he's experiencing now is no longer just about him not having a home and not being, uh, have a home-cooked food and him being afraid for his life and his physical well-being and his physical comfort of not being in the cave. You know what demonstrates his spiritual maturity? Now those things are issues, but they're very small issues. Now it's the spiritual things in his life that oftentimes bring him pain when they're not right. Let me, let me say it to you like this. 
a mature believer begins to experience pain for the sins of others. Let, let me read this. When our faith matures, we are not so worried about the mistreatment by others as we are pained for the heart of the one who has mistreated us. We stop going around telling everyone how much we've been mistreated and how badly we've been wronged and experience the pain and heartbreak knowing that the mistreatment demonstrates that the person who is mistreating us is not right with God. See this in a marriage when the marriage is not going well and a spouse, all they can do is bring condemnation down on their spouse and talk about how evil they are and how wicked they are. And then I turn to them and I ask them this question. I understand that they've done wrong, but have you come to the point in your life that you are burdened for your spouse? Not burdened for yourself, but burdened for them because the way they're treating you is either showing that they are miserably far from the Lord or they may not be a believer at all. When you mature in Jesus Christ, it's no longer about how people are mistreating you. It's a demonstration of what you begin to grieve and feel pain because of what that mistreatment demonstrates. And that is that they are far from God. Let me give you another example. There is the pain that you begin to experience as you begin to mature in God is a pain of lacking. When our faith uh, matures, we are not so much concerned that we don't have enough money to buy all the things that we want. How many of us just this week have worried about not having enough money of the car or the house or, or the trip or whatever, and we're trying to figure out how are we ultimately going to do that? And many immature Christians are still consumed with those things. As a believer in Jesus Christ begins to mature, what they begin to understand is this. They are pained that... They're not pained that they don't have any money to buy more stuff, but they are pained because they don't have more money to give for those who are suffering and for the more of the advancement of the gospel. The pain does not come in a lack of receiving, but in their limited ability to be able to give what their heart truly wants to be able to give. Do you see the maturity there? Do you see the pain? Isn't it interesting that we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we exchange one whole group of pains, that is the pain of sin and guilt and shame against God, and we take on a completely different type of suffering and pains that is actually a demonstration of the maturity of God working in us. The very final point would be this, and that is the pain of true suffering. When our faith matures, we are no longer so much focused on our physical pain than on the eternal or, or, or temporal pain, than on the eternal torment that will be experienced by all those who are outside of the faith of Jesus Christ. That's it. You know, have you ever talked to or been a part of a church where people complain about the air? Nobody's ever done that here. Ever complained about lighting or complained about seats or complained about comfort and all those sorts of things? You know what that just is simply? It really is just an evidence of immaturity. It just is. We, we all have done it. We, we've all lacked that. But when our hearts are being poured more out, not for our comfort, but rather we begin to actually weep for the lost because we understand any discomfort that we have here is merely temporal. But for those who are apart from Jesus Christ, their suffering will be infinitely greater and will be for eternal. That's a demonstration that a person is growing in their trust and their faith in God. Got that? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. But what I want you to understand is this. I want you to understand that God did not, did not come to save you merely to get you out of hell, but to change you and to transform you. 
That's why this teaching on really trusting God has been so important in the life of David is because he wants us to be more like him. We are more like him when we trust more in him. But it begins with the ultimate trust of laying our lives down, submitting to him, and recognizing that we are sinners in need of salvation. And recognizing that he provided that for us through his death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. It's not the end game. It's through that that he wants you and I to continue to mature to be more like him. But it begins with salvation. Are you there? Do you know him? Have you been born again? We're to take just a moment. Go ahead and stand to your feet, if you will. We're about to, to sing, and we're going to respond. And the response is this. If you don't know Christ, I would love to be able to share with you, talk with you about any prayers that you have. If, if God's speaking through you through some of these things, maybe you need that confidence. Maybe uh, you need to say, hey, God, I'm, I'm good with however you want to do things in my life. Uh, maybe you need to be more hands-off with all that. Whatever it is, just respond during this time. I'm going to be down here. If you need to know Christ, if you want to know more about him, I want to pray with you. There's something else that's going in your life that you need prayer with. I would love to be able to pray with you. But let's do business with him in faith as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Go ahead, brother.